Let's read tonight, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Let me begin to read. I'll also read the whole chapter if you'll bear with me for just a moment and go back and say three things quickly about this chapter tonight. 1 Timothy chapter number 3, verse 1. This is a true saying. If a man desire... Uh, so it all begins with an aspiration. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, that means a new convert, not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them that which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil." Now we enter the second section of this chapter, verse number 8. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. Let these also first be proved. Let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. Uh, normally, when we, you've been here, if you've been here long, you know that before we put a deacon on the deacon board, um, we always prove them. We let them go through a period. We set them aside in our church. And that's what that means, let them first be proved. Let the church set them aside, observe their life, and then move forward, uh, either to do it or not to do it. Then look at verse 11. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husband of one wife, ruling their children children and their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and, a, and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself, to set things in order in the house of God, which is the church of the living God and the pillar and the ground of truth, section 3, verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. Great chapter. Let's pray. Father, bless your word tonight. Speak to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In our recent Sunday evening services, we've been making our way through the New Testament book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy is one of only three books in our New Testament that was written by Paul specifically and especially to preachers, to pastors. There are three of these pastoral epistles in our New Testament. There's 1 and 2 Timothy and also the book of Titus. These were letters. They were very personal letters that Paul wrote to his partners in the ministry. So what we're doing as we read through the book of 1 Timothy, literally what we're doing is we're reading the mail of the Apostle Paul. And as of the writing of this book, 1 Timothy, Timothy has been placed as the pastor of the church, the ministry of the church located in the city of Ephesus. If you were to get a modern-day map and on that map locate the country of Turkey and then look on the western side of the country of Turkey right over near the Aegean Sea, you would see a town over there, and I hope I'm saying it's right, it's Kadeshi. 
That's a modern-day town in the country of Turkey. And the city of Ephesus was located about 10 miles from that modern-day Turkey, uh, modern-day uh, city of Kadassi. Paul went there to this city, the city of Ephesus, on his second missionary journey and actually stayed longer in the city of Ephesus than he did in any other place that he went. And when he left there in his wake, there was a thriving New Testament church that had been planted there. In fact, without doubt, one of the greatest churches in all of the New Testament. And Timothy is now the pastor of the church of Ephesus. And as with any pastor, whether they're young or whether they're old, he always will encounter problems. There'll be those specific struggles and, and uh, things that he'll have to deal with in the church. And Paul wrote, writes to him now to encourage him uh, along as the pastor of the church of Ephesus. He writes him a letter. We call that letter the, the book of First Timothy. And in this book, for the last several weeks, we've been in these first three chapters now, which deal with the various leadership positions in the church. Paul is writing to Timothy about how to build a church. When we get to chapter 4, we're going to talk about how to behave as a Christian. But right now, we're in this part of the book that deals with building a, a church. And we come to chapter 3, and we find now the part that the men play in the building of the local New Testament church. At the end of chapter 2, we talked about the part that the ladies play. In the starting of chapter 2, we, we talked about the part that prayer plays. But now we're in this part of this book where Paul begins to write specifically about the part that men play in the building of the local church. The one thing we've discovered in chapter 3 is that there are only two offices in the New Testament church that are ordained offices or positions in the New Testament church. One is the office of the pastor and the other is the office of the deacon. And the one thing that we've learned about this in this chapter is not just anybody can be a pastor. And not just anybody can be a deacon. There are certain qualifications. There are certain conditions that have to be met before someone can be called to preach or considered to be a deacon in the local New Testament church. There are certain qualities that one must possess if they're going to be a pastor, if they're going to be a, uh, if they're going to be a deacon. There are certain qualities, certain uh, characteristics that they, that they need to possess. The men who fill these positions are called called to a higher standard of behavior and a higher standard of living in this chapter. And Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he spells all that out for us in detail. You're looking for a pastor? This is the kind of man you're looking for. You're looking to make some preachers or some deacons in the church? These are some kind of men, some qualities of the men that you are looking for. Now he begins back up in chapter 3 beginning in verse number 1 and he talks about the major office of the church, the major office of the church, and that is the church and its shepherd. Now, of course, we know in our Bible that many times the pastor is referred to in the New Testament as the under-shepherd or the shepherd. Now, Jesus Christ himself is the chief shepherd. The pastor is just the under-shepherd. We read that over in 1 Peter chapter number 5, the elders which are among you, and by the, word, the way, uh, the, by the way, the word elders and the word bishop and the word pastor all refer to the same office. And Paul said to the elders among you, I exhort, who also am an elder and a witness of the Savior, Peter did, uh, of sufferings of Christ, and a partaker of the glory which shall be revealed. Then he goes on to say, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, 
but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. He goes on to say, neither is being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples, being an example to the flock. And he goes on to say, when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. That verse seems to indicate to me that God has a special reward for the pastor who will be the kind of under-shepherd over the flock that God intends for him to be. That's the major office. And Paul moves through these verses here and he talks about some of the requirements, some of the qualifications that it takes to be a pastor. He mentions the main requirement there in verse number 2 where he talks about a bishop must be blameless. Boy, what a main requirement. Nobody ought to be able to point an accusing finger at his life. He ought to live above reproach. Uh, he ought to pay his bills and he ought to be a man of his word. He ought to live above reproach. He must be blameless. That's the main requirement. Then we read about the marital requirement. Again in verse 2, he must be the husband of one wife. I don't think that means one at a time neither. I think that simply means one wife. I didn't write it. I'm just preaching it. He is to be a one-woman man. Now, I know like you, there are preachers that are preaching around. I get all that, and uh, God bless them, God help them, but I believe the Word of God teaches that a pastor needs to be the husband of one wife. He needs to be a one-woman man. How many preachers have messed their lives up because they were, they, they were constantly in the habit of chasing other women uh, in, the, in the church? What a bad testimony that's left on the church of Jesus Christ and on the call of Christ and even a blot on the name of Christ when people, when men will not obey the marital requirement to be a pastor. One man, woman. Then he goes on to talk about not only the marriage requirement, the main requirement, he talks about the moral requirements. Look again at verse 3. He's not given to wine. He's not a striker. He's not greedy, filthy lucre. Then he talks about the ministry requirements. He mentions all of that in verse 2 and verse 3. Verse 4, he rules his own house well, having his children in subjection with all gravity. And then he's, verse, not, verse 6, he's not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into condemnation. Verse 7, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. That's the, that's the major office of the church. That's the church and its shepherd. And then we move from the major office of the church Beginning in verse 8, we start talking about the minor office of the church. And that's the church and its servants. Now, use the word servants for the word deacons because that's what the New Testament word is for the word deacon. It's where we get our, uh, for the word servant, it's where we get our English word for deacon from. And deacons are to be servants in the church. 22 different times in the New Testament, Paul used the word servant, which is translated in our English language into the word deacon. And last time we met together, we went back and we started talking about where the whole concept of this began back at Acts chapter number 6. And we noticed that there was a murmuring going on in that church because some people felt neglected. They felt overlooked in, in that church. You know, people will always murmur when they feel like they're being overlooked or being neglected in the church. Whether it be true or not, perception to people is reality. And if they perceive themselves to being overlooked, to being neglected, there's going to be a murmuring, a, a, a current that's going on in the church. And, and they'll begin to share that and somebody else will start feeling neglected and overlooked and there'll be a murmuring there in the church. So instead of the men of God leaving the word of God in prayer, what they did was they picked them out some godly men in the church 
church, and they begin to serve the needs of that church family. Buddy, when that started, when they got those men, they selected those men to serve in that capacity. Oh, I want to tell you, number one, the murmuring stopped. Number two, the message spread. And number three, the membership soared. You see, when you get people in their right position and you get the man of God preaching the word of God and praying and being what he's supposed to be and you get the deacons that are serving and meeting the needs of the body of the, of the believers inside of that church and they're involved in the ministry of that church, I'll tell you something, nothing but good things is going to happen inside of that local New Testament church. Yes, sir. But you let somebody get out of sorts now. You see, go back to verse number 1. We read the word bishop in the singular sense. But when we come to verse number 8, we read the word deacon in the plural sense. Now that tells me there's only one pastor. There is only one pastor and there can be many deacons. And buddy, when we all fill our slots and we all find our place and we get into that, that place, that niche, whatever you want to call it, that job that God has given us to do, buddy, I'm telling you something, good things are going to happen inside of the house of God. The murmuring stopped. The message began to spread and the membership Sword. And that will still happen today when God's people get into their place. Well, what a blessing a godly deacon is to the church and to the pastor. And he mentions, if you'll look, and I'm going to move through these things quickly, but if you'll look in verse number 8, he begins to mention now the qualifications of what it takes to be a deacon. And again, we read that he must be a man. Now, of course, I'm not limiting the capacity of ladies to serve in our church. And again, we thank God for the ladies of our church. But these two offices are to be filled by men men only. And that's caused me problems in my own family because I got a sister that's a deaconess in a church. And that's caused me some problems in my own family. But can I tell you something? I didn't write it, man. I just preach it. And I believe it. And if God said this is where it's supposed to be, who am I to try to change things? Can I have an amen? God said the pastor is to be a man. Can I have an amen? God said the deacons are to be men in the church. And he's never deviated from that. You say, preacher, where do you find that at in the Bible? It's easy for me, and I don't even use that, well, he must be the husband of one wife. How can a woman be the husband of one wife? I go back to the end of chapter number 2, where in verse 12, where it says, I suffer not a man to teach. I'm sorry. I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. I think it's spelled out just as clear as it can be right there in verse number 12 that a woman is to never take authority over a man in the local New Testament church. So how can you have a Joyce Myers as a pastor? Can I have an amen? How can you have a Paula White? How can you have a, whoever these other ladies are that are going about in the so-called speaking circles of our day? Friend, I'm telling you something. They're violated. They've stepped over a boundary that God never intended them to step over. That job to this very day is still for a man. Save your letters. Save your stamps. I ain't changing my mind about it. I mean, it's, it's pretty clear, isn't it, that men are to fill these offices. Notice in these verses here, notice, if you will, beginning in verse number 8, he's to be a faultless man. He is to be a faithful man. He is to be a family man. He is to be a far-sighted man. And the Bible even promises there in verse number 13 that those who use the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. i got to tell you something. I don't understand all that, but I sure do like the sound of it. 
those people who faithfully discharged the duties of a preach of a deacon in the local New Testament church, God said they purchased to themselves a good degree and great bold. The only, there's two deacons in our Bible. There are two of them that are mentioned in our Bible. I'm telling you, bless their heart. God bless their life. I'm talking about old Stephen. He was one of those first ones that was picked there in the Acts chapter number 6 text. The next chapter over, he's preaching. Deacons can preach. And he's preaching, and man, they, they get so mad at him that they run on him, and they gnash on, the, gnash on him with their teeth, and they throw rocks at him, and they literally stone him to death. But right before he dies, he looks up into heaven, and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Boy, he used the office of a deacon well. And then what about the next chapter over when old Stephen went down to Samaria? He was one of those first ones. He went down to Samaria and started preaching, and revival broke out. God jerked him out of that revival, set him out there in the middle of a desert. There's an old boy crossing the desert, and before the story's over, old, 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 deacon, old deacon Philip has led that old boy, that old unit, to the Savior as well. They purchased, they used the office of a deacon well, and God blessed their lives. So we have now, we have the major office, that's the church and its shepherd. We have the minor office, that's the church and its servants. So anytime that our church goes looking for deacons, we need to be sure they meet those qualifications there. Set down for us right there in the word of God. And then last of all, in verse 16, and this is where I wanted to get to tonight, we have the messianic office. That's the church and its savior. Aren't you glad we got a savior tonight? Paul concludes this chapter by giving us a word about the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. Now, if you'll count them in the space of about 35 words, the Apostle Paul gives one of the greatest declarations about our Savior and his work that he came to do in all of the Word of God. 35 words, he sums up the entire life and work and ministry of our our Savior in the space, the confines of 35 words. And I even like how it starts it in verse 16, and without controversy. And that statement simply means it's by unanimous vote or by the consent of all who know. Buddy, I just want to tell you something. What I've read about my Savior in the Bible, what I've seen him do in the lives of other people, I give my consent to what Paul said right here in this text about the Lord Jesus and the great mystery of godliness. Yes, sir. Can I just work my way down through verse 16 real fast and we'll be done and we'll be on our way home. Watch this in verse 16. There are six things that, let's see, six things that Paul says or mentions about the Lord Jesus. And remember, it's by unanimous consent. It is by the consent of all who know. Brother, I will tell you, bless your heart, every one of us can verify that what Paul said in this text is true. God was manifest in the flesh. God was justified in the spirit. God, the Lord Jesus, was seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world and received up into glory. Can I break that apart for you? First of all, he mentions, number one, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Look what he said there. God was manifest in the flesh. That's the incarnation. Now, some of these other versions, I understand. I've not read them. I, I don't know this. This is just what I've read. Other people have said. But they say that un, uh, uh, some of these other versions starts it off like this. He was manifest in the flesh. Well, bless your heart, I want you to know he 
he's more than just a he. He is God in human flesh. The incarnation. Jesus Christ, God, came down from heaven and was manifested in the flesh. We celebrate that every Christmas and we call that the incarnation. And there at Bethlehem, in Bethlehem's manger, the Word that was eternal, the Word that was in the beginning, the Word who has no beginning and has no ending, was made flesh and dwelt among us, the Bible said. I'm talking about the Lord Jesus himself. He was God Almighty, but he left heaven and he came into this world and he took upon himself, so says the Bible, a form of a servant. In other words, Jesus was God with skin on. Amen. He was God in the flesh. I'm telling you, he was not 50% man and 50% God. He was 100% man and 100% God. I'm here to tell you he was God in human flesh. As a man, he could get tired and rest upon a rock by a whale. But as God, he could rise up off that whale and give that woman a drink of eternal everlasting water whereby she'd never thirst again. As, as a man, he could get hungry and fast for 40 days. But as God, he could take a, a small handful of food and feed 5,000 men, not counting the women and the children. As a man, he could get tired and lay down in the backside of a ship and go to sleep. But as God, he could rise up in a Category 5 hurricane and speak peace be still. And the Bible said there'd be a great calm. As a man, he could lay his holy head upon his breast on the cross of Calvary and he could give up the ghost and he could die. But bless your heart, 72 hours later, as God, he'd walk out of the blackness of that tomb and declare himself to be alive. He's God in the flesh, friend. The incarnation. Well, I'm glad I believe that. Amen. He was the word which became flesh. He was manifest in the flesh. That's the incarnation. But he moves from the incarnation and he moves to the justification. Look at this phrase in this verse. He was justified in the spirit. That word justified means he was proved or uh, that word means he was vindicated. We think about justification when a sinner is declared. He's, he, is, he is vindicated by the, uh, by the work of Jesus on the cross of Calvary and he's declared to be righteous. It's the same word. But Jesus was justified. He was proved. He was vindicated to be who he said he was by the Spirit of God. You see, when he died on the cross of Calvary, God stamped his approval upon the life of the Lord Jesus. When 72 hours later, the Spirit of God breathed nostrils back into the, uh, the life, uh, the, the, uh, the body of the Lord Jesus, and he walked out of that tomb. The Bible said God declared him to be alive by many infallible proofs. And the Word of God said that God proved that Jesus was who he said he was by the resurrection from the grave, the incarnation, and then the justification. I tell you, God stamped his approval upon his son when he raised him again from the dead. And God said, that's all you'll ever need. It's finished, it's finished, the great transaction's done. Jesus paid the price. You can't lift a finger nor a foot to help God to save you. Jesus paid the price on the cross of Calvary. It's been paid once and for all. And thank God the way is clear. Anybody who wants to can come and be saved. 
name tonight. The incarnation, the justification. What about this? The visualization. Look again at verse 16 where it says he was seen of angels. Boy, I got to thinking about how that angels played such an important part in the life of our Savior. While when he was born, the Bible said the angels announced his birth. Before he was ever born, the angels announced God's intention to send his son into the world. At the great temptation, the Bible said after the 40 days and the 40 nights as he was with the jackals and the wolves and they're howling in the desert and for 40 days and 40 nights and not eating a morsel of bread and he was weak and he was hungry. The Bible said after that experience that the angels came and they ministered unto him while there in the garden of Gethsemane under the weight of that cross and bearing what was in that cup and the sins of all of humanity being dumped on him there in the garden of Gethsemane. The, the Bible said that he wept and his blood became, his tears became as it were great drops of blood as Jesus' heart was breaking when he considered what he was about to do. And yet the Bible said even there in the garden of Gethsemane that the angels came and ministered unto him. I'm telling you right before they arrested him when old Peter jerked his sword out and took a swing at Malchus's head and he missed his head but he got his ear and Jesus looked over and said, Peter, put your sword up. I could pray right now to my father and he'd give me more than 12 legions of angels to come down and rescue me from this situation. I think about the part that the angels played in the resurrection as Mary headed out to the tomb that morning and the angels were sitting there on the rock and were the first to proclaim that he that had died was now alive again. I think about the part that the angels played when he ascended back to heaven. The Bible said he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as the disciples stood there and looked steadfastly into heaven, behold, by them stood two men in white apparel, which said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus that was taken up shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go away. I'm telling you, and guess what? When he comes back again, the angels of God are going to come back with him and ascend back with him and become the agents of God's judgment when his wrath is poured out on this world. I'm just saying all that say this. He was seen of the angels, bless your heart. And then the next verse, his incarnation, his justification, his visualization. What about his proclamation? Look what the Bible said. He was preached unto the Gentiles. I mean, buddy, that preaching is going on to this very day. This world is being confronted by old-fashioned God-called preachers who stand up with the Bible and confront men about their sin and their need for the Savior. He's still being preached on in, unto the world, unto the Gentiles to this very day. Aren't you glad there's still some churches around where they'll chart their course down the King James Bible. They'll stand up and preach the death and the birth and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They'll give out that simple gospel message. They'll invite sinners to come and be saved. He's still being preached unto this very day. Thank God for the preaching. Thank God for preachers who'll stand up and preach about Jesus. I'll tell you, bless you all, we can't preach about politics. We can't preach about what's going on in our world necessarily, but I'll tell you, you can always say something good about Jesus. He's the best thing it's ever been, the best thing it ever will be, and he ought to be proclaimed in this day. His proclamation. What about his salvation? Look at that next phrase. He's been believed on in the world. Now I know we're living in right at the end of time. And I get that. 
I understand that maybe, and I'm not trying to be pessimistic here. God knows my heart. I'm not trying to be pessimistic at all. But I mean, we ain't seeing a whole lot of people get saved much anymore, are we? I mean, you can stand up here and just preach your throat out. And beg and plead and preach on hell. And I mean, man, just give it your best shot. And ain't a whole lot of people getting saved much no more, are there? I remember those great days in the uh, 70s. I don't remember much about the 60s, but I remember those 70s and even the early part of the 80s in churches where it wasn't nothing to have 35 or 40, 40 people get saved revival meeting and they'd be, be lined up to get baptized after revivals. You don't see that happening much anymore. I really believe with all my heart we're living in the last days. That's not an excuse. It's not a cop-out. But we understand that there's an apostasy. There's a turning away from God. Men don't have a need for God anymore. Uh, even God's people are turning away from Him. And we're not seeing a whole lot happen in these days. Can I have an amen? I'm reminded back in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy when God told those, the, the, the nation of Israel when it comes time to glean the harvest. He said, you stay out of the corners of the field. You, if you miss over a spot, don't you go back. That's for the poor of the land. That was God's welfare program back in those days. Bless God, you just didn't live off the government. I mean, God told them, stay out of the corners of the property. Leave that for the poor of the people. And if you miss over a spot, leave that. They'll come and get that. You, that's what we're going to do to help our poor people out here in the nation of Israel. By the way, I still think it'd be a good thing if our government would put people back to work instead of feeding people and blessing them and providing for them in their laziness, friend. Can I have an amen? But look at me. I'll tell you what we're doing. We're just gleaning the corners now. We're gleaning over a few spots that's been left over here and there. But I'm glad every once in a while. I, I, and it ain't a whole lot. But I still like it when some preacher will stand up and preach on Jesus unto the Gentiles and yonder will come one down the aisle and, he'll st and he's still being believed on in the world. I'm talking about salvation. And last of all, look at this one. So there's incarnation, justification, visualization, proclamation, salvation. And last of all, you can use either word, glorification or exaltation. Because the Bible said he was received up into glory. <laughs> he came into this world, lived here for, for 33 plus years, lived an absolutely perfect life, never had to go to anybody and say, I'm sorry I said that. Never had to go to mom and dad and say, I'm sorry I disobeyed you. Never had to look up in the face of his father one time and said, Father, I've sinned. Forget. He lived a perfect, spotless, innocent life. They took him to Calvary and they nailed him to the cross and put him to death. Uh, he was buried three days. He resurrected 40 days. He stayed here on the earth. And then at the end of those 40 days, the Bible said he was taken up. He was carried back to heaven. And I'm glad he's there tonight because guess what? I've got an intercessor there. I've got an advocate there. Hey, when I'm weak, I got an intercessor. Hey, when I'm weary, I got an advocate, friend. I've got one there at the right hand of the Father who's sitting there tonight and he's interceding and pleading and advocating on my behalf. I'm glad I'm not left to myself in this world. He was received up into glory. I said all that to say that. That's our Savior right there. That's that messianic office, the Savior of the church. Well, I sung in the choir. I'm about to give out. <laughs> Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, thank you.